Hey everyone, welcome to episode 11 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Bryn Jackson. I'm very sick right now, <laughs> so this is my sick voice. Sick voice, sexy voice. Oh man. Can I say that on the show? Kind of now. Um, <laughs> we sat down this last Wednesday with Erica Hall, who literally wrote the book on user research. It's called Just Enough Research. She's also the co-founder of Mule Design. She's just a remarkable member of the design community, and she's she's done so much to help us grow and, and become more capable. Yeah, this is an awesome ep- episode to record. Uh, probably will sound better. We are in an actual semi-ready recording room. It was room. a great room. Yeah, so hopefully things sound good. Also, uh, yeah, last week we did two episodes and the response has been awesome. Thanks so much for everyone that tweeted at us. Or They are both yeah. the fastest growing episodes we've ever done. Yeah, with Tim and our special bonus Apple Watch Watch 2015 episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, thanks so much. If, if you have any more thoughts, definitely feel free to hit us up on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM. You all are awesome. Y'all's awesome. Y'all are awesome. All right, let's what get into the hell was that? <laughs> let's get into this episode. I uh, quickly wanted to thank two sponsors. Uh, once again, thank you so much to IconFinder.com for supporting the Design Details podcast. IconFinder has the largest selection of premium vector icons on the web. You can be sure you're always going to find the perfect icon for any project you're working on. And if you sign up for Icon Finder Pro today, you can use the promo code ROBOT and get 50% off your first month. Thank you so much to IconFinder.com. Our second sponsor is a new one. One of the few tools I use every single day, Pixate. Pixate lets you create sophisticated, interactive, mobile prototypes visually without writing any code. What makes Pixate really different is that the prototypes are generated in real time right on your iOS or Android device and are completely native so they feel exactly like the real thing. Don't let my sick voice fool you. I'm very excited to have them on board. Pixate's awesome. I love Pixate. Yeah, it's I, cool. I bought a custom phone mount to stick it to the side of my screen so just for Pixate usage. It is the best. Yeah, if you're prototyping, you need to be checking out Pixate. And with that, let's get to episode 11 with Erica Hall. Erica, tell us uh, what you're up to these days. What are you working on? Let's see, what am I working on? Uh, There's been so much, so, so much. I'm trying to remember what I can talk about. I've been, oh, I know what I've been doing. I've been uh, writing a lot of shorter pieces and putting them on Medium. I saw that. Mm -hmm. Why? You've got quite a collection built up. Yeah. Why? Uh, Because I was going to put together an author site to go with my book just to um, to talk about things I didn't have a chance to cover in the book and gather everything else I've been doing, talks and, and things like that um, out at conferences. And then I realized I started using Medium and, and realized that I could just do it there and not um, build out my own site. So jump back, tell me a little bit about your book and we'll certainly plug it in the show notes and send some people your way, but uh, maybe give us like an Super. overview of, of what it's about and why mm-hmm. you're that topic is interesting to you research um it is so the book just enough research and i wrote it i am not a researcher by background i don't have an advanced degree but i've incorporated research into my work just about the entire time i've been involved in interactive design and what you hear a lot from 
from clients or people working internally is a lot of resistance to doing research because it sounds like homework, it sounds like spending money, and it sounds like not the fun part of design. Everybody just wants to start drawing and ideating and whiteboarding and pair programming, and they don't want to you know, sit around and do a lot of what sounds like busy work or homework and sounds like it's going to take a lot of time. It doesn't look productive. Yeah, it doesn't look productive and it doesn't it doesn't sound fun. It doesn't sound fun. It's not glamorous. It totally doesn't sound like the fun part. Yeah. It really doesn't. And and the results don't seem very tangible. Mm. And the actual truth is that the research is a lot of fun. I had the good fortune to be introduced to it by the first design ethnographer I ever worked with, who was very collaborative and brought everybody into the process. And we all had a fantastic time doing it. And it just seems impossible, like absolutely impossible to do any real real considered design work without having a sense of what your problem is, what your constraints are, what the business context is. These all seem totally necessary. And when I looked at where the resistance came from, the resistance came from a combination of misconceptions about what research actually is, because if you haven't done it, there's no clear path into it. Because the people, the gatekeepers are people with PhDs and people think, well, that's something people with PhDs do. And the people with PhDs weren't necessarily doing a great job of welcoming people in for a lot of reasons. Like the specialist researchers were very comfortable talking to other specialist researchers. And there was no real short book. One of the best books on research uh, was written by a really good friend of mine. But it's five. It's observing the user experience. And it's 500 pages long. Oh, my God. It's giant and it's yeah. great and it's a fantastic source book. Like I would use it all the time to look up like, oh, I want to use this particular technique. What should I remember? What's a good interview guide? And it's fantastic. But if you handed this to somebody who's a designer or a developer and you said, here, you need to read this before you can do your job, forget it. And so I thought, well, you don't actually need that much. You don't need to know many new things because everybody working in the business has the analytical skills already. They have, you know, generally the listening skills and the information processing skills and everything. You just need to know a couple quick techniques Mm -hmm. to do a a lot of really useful things. And this is not to disparage really deep research that comes from a more academic and more rigorous place. But for a lot of things, especially if you're putting, if you're building an app or building like a content-driven website, you're not going to need the kind of deep research. You're not going to need to uncover a lot of new things, really. You just need sort of direct understanding experience of the world you're designing in. And it, that world changes so often that, uh, that you, should, you just need to look outside yourself. And I think part of the problem is, you know, that there's the genius designer and the rock star developer. <laughs> and and there's been this culture of of wanting to look inside yourself for the answer. And that's mm. really what I wanted to change. I wanted to make people feel like the fun part wasn't thinking of something all on your own. The fun part was looking out at the world and saying, where are the real problems? What are the obstacles I have to overcome? And I just wanted to make that easy and approachable for people. Yeah, that's like the romanticized version, right? Like, oh, I, I came up with this beautiful solution in the shower or something. And Everyone thinks they're Steve Jobs or likes to think they're Steve Jobs. Okay. <laughs> they're, they're aspiring billionaires, so they're as smart as them. Well, so here's the best thing I've found in the last little bit to answer that, because that yep. was one of the biggest objections, especially when Apple was just blowing up and Apple's so secretive. 
Mm-hmm. And Steve was so incredibly charismatic. I had the great fortune of seeing him on stage once in pretty close quarters. And you can feel the magic just emanating off of him, especially compared to any other uh, executive who talks about anything. Like, he was so incredibly charismatic. And so there was this myth, oh, Apple doesn't do any research. And a while back, I, was, I think right around the time my book came out, I was asking people what the the myths were and and what the the barriers to doing any research were and this came up oh Steve Jobs doesn't research and I forget if somebody pointed me to this or I was just googling but I found on uh, YouTube some guy had posted a clip from Next Computing of Steve Jobs sitting down and saying, hey, everybody, I'm so excited to share with you the results of our field studies because we really wanted to go out and understand the customer. And I've talked to you guys and I really I understand the problem now and I understand what we need to do. And he was making this case. He was sitting there on us on a stool in front of a screen making the case for research. And so I grabbed that clip and I use it. It's like the the kicker in my my basic talk now at, at the very end. It's like, let's I just took the very first couple minutes of it where Steve Jobs is saying, research is super important, and we went out and did it, and it's awesome. And uh, and that really puts the, the lie to that, because they do a tremendous amount of mm. research, but they're so secretive, and they've built this cult of genius because they are incredible marketers. Mm-hmm. But they're very thorough, and they don't do things on accident. Yeah, so. Yeah. So I recall one time when he was on stage, I believe he said something like, we don't do focus groups because focus groups are junk. And I think everyone took that to mean we don't do research. Yeah. But there's a significant, a significant difference between focus groups and user testing. I mean, I, I firmly believe in not doing focus groups because then you get a lot of group think and piling on mm-hmm. things like that. Um, but, but going one-on-one and talking to someone like mm-hmm. as they go through it or one of the things that's been really cool. I, I just started a job at a new startup and we have this chat function built in and we have a channel that's always open that just says, feedback and people will ask us stuff as they go and it'll show up in our slack and it's like the first thing i see every day i check it at lunch and after work and it just like it keeps everything very focused on exactly what the users want it's really Mm -hmm. awesome well actually that makes me curious if if you were working on a brand new app or a small startup what is what's the most important piece of research someone could spend time on say they're strapped for money and time what's like the Mm -hmm. one I know there's many, but what's like the best thing someone could spend their time on in the research phase? Is that face-to-face conversations? Is it trying to gather data, um, putting tracking somewhere on a website? Like what, what's really effective? I think it's, it's even simpler than that. I think it's, it's really asking yourself what problem you're solving and who else is solving this problem. I feel like so there's so many startups out there now who create an app and you're like, who is this? Who needs this? Who is this for? Because, you know, it because people have so little attention and so little time and so much crap competing for that attention. I think a lot of people could just do research by sitting down with a, a colleague who's sworn to be honest with them and just telling the, telling their friend over beers to say, okay, what are all the other ways somebody might solve the problem I'm trying to solve? Like, where's the real value in this? And and wanting to be challenged. I think it's not, there's no specific activity 
or type of research or methodology more important than just wanting to be proven wrong really, really quickly. And, you know, I've, some things I've talked a lot about are about the, the idea that there's been uh, a lot of talk in the industry about failing, like, oh, it's a fail fast and break things and do this. And, and I think you shouldn't even get to the point of building something, <laughs> right? If your your idea might fail before you even do a proof of concept, because it's a stupid idea that nobody needs. And I think just getting over your ego to say, okay, I want to know if my idea is stupid. And instead, there people exist in these little hype bubbles with their team. And they're like, yeah, we're all going to just build a lot of stuff. And I think Agile kind of feeds into that. Because it's Agile's a way to build a lot of stuff quickly, but in no way does it tell you what to build hmm. or whether you're building the right thing right. or solving the right thing. And a lot of people say, oh, but we'll build a prototype. But your prototype could be solving a problem nobody needs. Like Vince Lombardi had the greatest metaphor for this. He said building a prototype is like um, trying to make the greatest wine opener. And you can try wine openers, you can make wine openers, and that will never tell you that what people really want is a screw top bottle. People don't want a wine opener. They want their wine open. And I tell you, after a long day, I go to the store, I pick the wine with the screw top because that comes right, right open, you know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so don't even build a prototype. Just just try to have people poke holes in your idea. And that's free. Maybe the cost of a beer. You know, maybe you say, I'll buy you a beer for every like really great objection you come up with to my project, you know? Something like that. It's a, it's a mindset. It's not a technique. It's not a methodology. It's it's getting over yourself. And if they do a good job, you have a party then. So Exactly. Yeah. What about ideas that sound really dumb on the surface, but might like we can't even comprehend the problems that they could potentially solve. And an example that comes to mind, which I hesitate to bring up, is Snapchat. Mm-hmm. It's like I it's think if, stupid. If that had been pitched to me, I would have said, Oh, come on, seriously, like, do we really need that? And then here we are what, two years mm-hmm. later, and it's, what? They've raised, what, $3 billion? Yeah, it's, like it's a $19 billion valuation and, mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. Um, how do you balance that? Like where an idea might sound so far-fetched or uh, stupid. stupid. <laughs> uh, what if you miss that? Um, well, I think with Snapchat, see, Snapchat doesn't sound stupid to me. Oh, okay. Because there's a real problem. That, that they were solving. The real problem is that people want to send each other stupid things. <laughs> ah. Like people want to be stupid. Okay, so the things you can always bet on are you can bet on people wanting to be jackasses and you can bet on people being super lazy. And if, if it's anything in that arena, it's when, you, it's when your product assumes that people are going to be ambitious or pay a lot of attention or you know watch a lot of foreign films on Netflix. <laughs> That's the product that's going to fail. But if you have a product where you're like, it's dead easy, and this is going to allow people to send each other uh, pictures of themselves being stupid or doing something risky without leaving a trail, that to me, if somebody came to me with that idea, I'd say, that's sure, that's a thing people need. Because it's, it's assuming like people are going to act like jackasses and don't want the consequences, right? That's a good bet on human behavior. People make <laughs> bad bets on human behavior that, that involve you know changing changing things significantly or you know going out of their way that requires no going out of your way it's just like oh i can do the same thing but get a benefit and that's that's another way i think to tell if something's going to be good it's like can people have the same habits and get more benefit then that's something that sounds like it's going to be a lot more of a winner Mm. but if you're like oh but but my product is going to be so compelling that people are going to be willing to do more work never never 
So a lot of studios like Tihan and Lax, for example, built mm-hmm. built their own like branded products almost. Mm-hmm. Has Mule ever considered doing that? Like, has that ever been a temptation that you had to pull back from? Because the only one I can think of would be Mule Radio Syndicate. Yeah. I mean, we sold t-shirts for a while. We did evening edition. We did the radio. But building our own app. Um, yeah, that seems I to mean, be just a trend. We've... Uh, Let's see. We've had some pretty elaborate practical jokes, but we haven't. I'm trying to remember. I feel like we we might have done something at some point, and I've just, like I said, forgotten about it. What was the uh, uh, un, unsuckify? Or oh, unsuck it. Unsuck yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> that's a side project. That's just a lexicon of business jargon. That was awesome. Oh, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> that was a personal that for a long time. <laughs> that was a personal project because uh, I hate the use of stupid words. Artisanal. Artisanal. <laughs> that <laughs> that one people was great. use to make themselves sound smart. That was inspired. I walked on, on my way to work. Uh, there used to be this really fantastic travel bookstore that went out of business. This was one of my favorite bookstores in the city. And the bookstore went out of business. And then uh, a co-working space went in there and failed. And then it was replaced by artisanal fitness. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What does and, that mean? <laughs> The picture accompanying the phrase artisanal fitness was some white dude holding clubs, um, wearing like a little beanie. And what I guess it is, is like one-on-one kettleballs and and stuff, but it's paying a lot of money for some dude to stare at you while you (laughs) do things that you could do free in your own home is... (laughs) Is what I gather from it, and that really seemed like a sign of the end times. Like, I really missed that bookstore that was useful and delightful. Now there's artisanal artisanal fitness. It doesn't mean anything. The last time I recall hearing artisans, and it stuck out to me, was when uh, during the last Apple Watch presentation, uh, Johnny Ive is talking about artisans <laughs> <laughs> making their uh, their watches, and I was just cracking up. It was so amazing. Are uh, these the artisans at Foxconn who are in the, yeah. right. the factories? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. They haven't announced anything about them be, being built in the U.S., so I would guess so. Yeah. Everyone was kind of hoping, especially like the additions would be at that mm-hmm. plant in Austin that makes the Mac Pros. Mm-hmm. That would have been great. But uh, Right now, I would say we're, we don't have any products in mind at the moment you guys have been crazy busy with like clients so yeah right yeah we've been crazy busy you just launched seattle times seattle times and the audubon, audubon. society yep. yeah those are two big ones that um that are super exciting and great great people to work with i never thought i would go to a site in seattle and read their news just because it was beautiful like oh. yeah i spent way too much time on the audubon site today like <laughs> look at all these birds <laughs> these are great oh, birds are, beautiful birds are crazy. Site, yeah. yeah they that was um they're swell and one of the great things about audubon that I think a lot of people don't know is it's really the guy in charge of it, David Yarnold, the CEO, ran the Mercury News for a while. So he's okay. a newspaper guy. Wow. And we love working with journalists and um, and media people because they they like to argue in a really productive way and and they really get to the point. Hmm. You know, and they don't hold back. And sometimes, you know, sometimes people are, are worried about giving us negative feedback and we try to tell people like that's really really helpful you know there's no feelings in design and, i always have to fight for that in user testing it's like yeah. I, you don't get any points for saying good job mm-hmm. I, I really need the hard stuff the stuff that's broken the stuff that confuses you yeah it's tricky to get that feedback yeah and yeah, it really is but uh journal journalists are great for that they uh they don't pull punches so, yeah. 
yeah that's well, awesome mule like on your the first sentence of the page basically is like we're a stubborn design mm-hmm. firm how do you encourage clients to be to give you that like raw honesty or does that sort of happen naturally just by the nature of your marketing uh well there yeah there is a certain filter there are people people who really desire that um very straightforward interaction and we really it's we've learned over the years uh through you know through trial and error we've learned that it it was surprising to us uh a couple times when it happened when we found out that people weren't totally coming clean you know we'd have these awkward situations in which the client would say oh that's great that's really great and we'd sense this mounting frustration and finally have to it would, it would come to a head and they'd confess or we'd force a confession out of them and they'd say well we haven't thought that, you know, the last few things you've showed us haven't worked, but we kept hoping you would do something different. We said, well, you know. <laughs> that's not how any of this works. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not how feedback works. If you tell somebody that's great, they're going to do more of that. <laughs> you know, that's how positive reinforcement yeah. works. And so we've, um, we talk about this a lot. We talk about this with clients. We, uh, especially when we're looking at anything visual, like visual design, we have a couple little speeches we give that say, your negative feedback is far more important than your positive feedback because there's a lot more we can do with it. And, mm. and we really try to help people and give people a framework and language to give feedback because a lot of people, uh, you know, we do this full time, but for most of our clients, designing a new product or service or website is something that is different from their day to day. They're not designers and they, you know, sometimes they feel you know, kind of self-conscious because they're not designers. And so we want to really make them feel comfortable and let them know they don't need to be designers. They don't need to learn design language. They just need to speak to us from the point of view of their business or organization. And that that give and take is um, is where the good work comes from. Like the more honest people are with us and the more they challenge us, the stronger our work, our work is going to be. Mm-hmm. Do you have any clips from that speech you give that you could share? Like, I'd, I don't know how I would prime someone. Like- Let's see. Well, Be brutally we, <laughs> honest. Uh, we, we say, you know, we we're pros. We don't have feelings. We tell them that <laughs> or that, robots or, just plug it in. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we give them, yeah, you know, we give them examples. We say, tell us, you know, if if you really hate something, like really tell us you hate it. But it's a lot more productive to say, you know, it's not working. And here's why it's not working. We always preface everything by referring to the goals of a project because with no goals, if you don't have clear goals, you don't have a design project. And so if we have those goals, then we can say, well, tell us to what extent what we're looking at does or does not meet those goals for the particular users we're working with. And so we give them, we give people sort of a script and a framework to, and a way to think about it. And then uh, we, you know, we facilitate the conversation and we really try to draw them out and we've just, it's experience just working with people. Like we can tell a lot of times if somebody's holding back and, and sometimes, you know, it can be that, you know, that group dynamic you mentioned that, that mm-hmm. happens in focus groups where we think, oh, that person, you know, if we're working with a, a complex team, you know, politics are the hardest part of design. Um, you know, the design is, is relatively straightforward usually, you know, uh, but it's, Figuring out how to get decisions made in very complex organizations, like that's the hard part of the problem, and that's the part that we've that our experience really benefits us. 
in. And so sometimes we can look around a table and kind of get a sense of the dynamic and think, oh, that person probably has some really good ideas, but they're not going to say that in front of their boss because their boss just said something. And so, or maybe there are two teams that, uh, that have opposing viewpoints or something like that. And we just, we kind of keep an eye out for that too. Well, how do you solve it if that happens? Uh, well, it it depends on the situation. Like sometimes we might have a private follow-up conversation mm. just to say, hey, you know, is, is there anything else? Or we might follow up with questions to everybody or we might find, you know, a different angle to to raise an, an issue with, you know, just it's asking, it's it's just asking questions. It's all, it's, re, it's real Socratic method, you know? Yeah. It's is it just, hard to, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, is it hard to keep things from getting prescriptive or like caught up in minutia? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, especially changing colors, especially when it comes to, you know, one of the things we say is that a design project is a series of decisions and some people are more or less comfortable making decisions. And the closer you get to committing like that can be really, really scary. Like it's amazing how much fear we deal with in our work because people are are doing things that have huge implications for their businesses. Their jobs might be on the line. And a lot of times those are the greatest projects. Those are the best projects, you know, when they're so important to the organization. But then the people working on them, they're in new territory. Mm-hmm. They're working with designers. This isn't their their forte. And there are a lot of resources at stake. There's this whole future. And they, they get nervous, understandably so. And so we find ways to kind of get through that that fear to the decision but as the decision becomes imminent it can become more like oh let's focus in on this one little tiny thing because we don't actually want to commit to this decision and we try to find ways to with compassion and empathy (laughs) help people through uh to make a decision Mm. it's all humans humans are messy they are the worst (laughs) (laughs) i know but dogs don't have checking accounts so we they we can't have them as clients uh, if is- only we could. <laughs> Maybe we should take a quick break to thank one of our sponsors. Just want to take a second to thank our newest sponsor, which I'm very excited about, Pixate. Pixate is one of my favorite tools. There's like three things I use every single day. That's Sketch, Pixate, and Twitter. Like, <laughs> it, it is <laughs> the farthest one. I get toward native every single day. Anytime I'm trying to explain a concept to someone, I, I've stopped trying to like show them sketch prototypes and explaining it. They'll go bloop and like waving my hands to show them how it should work. I use Pixate. It's so fast. It's so easy. It's so good. It uses native views. So it's actually writing real app code for iOS and Android. You can create a completely native prototype in minutes and play with it right on your phone or tablet. It's really incredible. Dude, that's, I can't believe how like far prototyping tools have come. We're really lucky. In right one year. Yeah, this and is insane. I've played with all of them. Pixate is my favorite. I live by Pixate. They recently launched support for Android Wear, and they're working on Apple Watch support. So it's just going to get better and better. So you can build any app for any system, yes. really. And they're working on native code generation of your prototypes. So you can, you can program the animation and then hand off the actual piece of code to your developers which is remarkable. That's that like, is insane. That is the future of collaboration right there. I mean, yeah. If you're a designer, that's like a dream come true. And they've got Pixate Action. So if you really want to dig in and do stuff that's um, like in the codes, you can extend what the app can do on its own, which is really neat. Pixate just launched Pixate Studio, which is something I've been wanting for a long, long time. It's a standalone uh, local version of the app because usually it's a web app. Now you can get Pixate Studio if you're a pro member. It's included as part of the service, and right now you can get it for 25% off, both the service and Pixate Studio, 
for a year for only $149. Just go to pixate.com slash DD to get the discount. I will. If you already have an account. If you don't have an account, go to pixate.com slash sign up to create a free account and then grab that deal if you want before it expires on March 25th. That is an insane deal. I love that deal. $150 for a year. Yes. Ooh. 25% off. Love it. So thanks once again to Pixate. So I'm curious how working at Mule has sort of evolved and if you've ever had any interest in doing in-house stuff. Like I know you've, you, in the beginning of your career, you had a chance to do some of that. Um, like at a startup? Yeah, like, mm-hmm. or even uh, just taking the agency model and putting it inside a big company and saying like, we ha- we are pros at this and we can help one project do something really great over a longer period of time. Yeah, I started my career working in-house and then at a startup that rolled out of the publishing company I was working for. So so I got my taste of that. And then after that, I went into the agency and I really didn't look back because I love client services work. I really, really love it because there's a clarity you get and there are boundaries you get. You know, constraint makes for good designs mm. and constraint makes for good projects too because you know, like we have a budget we have a timeline, we have a goal, and, and we're in and we're accomplishing that. And it's very clean cut. And then there are results at the end of it. And I think working in-house, things can kind of get squishy or they can change, priorities change, and you don't have any control over that. And, you know, it's, we're, we have, uh, we're so privileged to have, uh, you know, a choice of, of people to work with. And... Um, we, you know, being able to work on, on something really great with people and then go and work on something else and go in and solve, you know, people come to us when they have a hard problem that they can't solve internally. And so we get really interesting problems and there are things we can do coming in from the outside because sometimes we get, we work with a client and, you know, they'll have really smart people internally and it, and we don't necessarily think of anything that no one in that organization has thought of before, but we can go in and we can get it done. Mm-hmm. Because they listen to us. It's not fair, <laughs> you know, that uh, that it's so hard to be heard inside an organization unless you're one of the designated people that the people in charge listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's true that that sometimes you can propose radical changes from the outside and you can ask really naive questions. Like you can come in, we can, we can go in and we say, okay, we've got to ask you, we've got to really understand your work before we design for you. So we can ask things like, why do you do it like that? Whereas if you were just working in an organization, even if you were relatively senior, that would be a disastrous question to like, <laughs> yeah, don't ask oh, I'm going to call everything we're doing yeah. into question. I'm going to question the value yeah. of, of the way we work. And so we, uh, we can come in and we can, that's part of our job. And so that's, that's really fun. And we don't have to, you know, be as politic about things. We can just come in and be like, hey, we're here from the outside. We're here to understand you. And then we're going to leave. I've never worked in agency and I don't have too much perspective there. How do you see agency work across the design field in general sort of evolving over time? It seems like especially startups and mm-hmm. even smaller and smaller startups increasingly have in-house designers now. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a, a trend that you see as well? Or do you feel like each has its own place? Uh, yeah, I definitely it's it's changing because I think there used to be a lot. Uh, there used to be a lot more mystery. uh around interactive design and what makes good design and a lot less talent. And one of the biggest changes that's been happening is that venture capital firms are getting in-house design expertise. You know, it seems like every big firm these days has a a design leader. 
A resident designer. A resident design leader who can go in and advise startups um, at a strategic level. And so I think the general quality of knowledge and thought out there has uh, has definitely increased. Uh, so, so that's changed. But there are still, there are many organizations that don't need or can't necessarily attract that same caliber of design. And so there'll always be a place mm-hmm. for for client services. Think like the Audubon project. Like, yeah, you guys built an amazing product for them or or website, but it's not like they need a team maintaining that forever and ever, right? Right. Yeah, they have you know a great creative director and they have mm-hmm. great photographers. They just needed that framework. Right, right. They needed that one time strategic push. You know, and a lot of what we did is really we push people maybe to do things that aren't the easiest or the most comfortable thing to do. Mm-hmm. And then they have that framework and they can use that framework for a certain amount of time until things shift, until, you know, the, their context shifts or they go into a different line of business. And then there'll be a big shift and they need a new framework and they need a new communication strategy, something like that. And then we come in and work on that. Yeah. Then they come back to you. Yeah. Maybe, but you know, things you know, things should last. I think for a while, and hopefully, you know, we've we try to we really there are um, client services organizations out there who try to have an ongoing, you know, retainer maintenance kind of relationship with people, and we think that we're really successful if we work with an organization and set them up to be really independent and to have all the knowledge and to have the platform and the functionality that they need. To um to start with a core and then build out from there and continue on their own for quite some time. How did that decision get made as opposed to going the retainer route? Um, you know, maintenance work isn't as interesting, and <laughs> it's not as um, you know, it's not the best use of our skills. I think for really huge agencies, maybe they have like they have strategic people and then they have a huge number of production people, and they can just kind of um you know, kind of keep that going and keep uh, keep billing like that. But I think sometimes, especially in the nonprofit world, there are people who've structured it so that their clients are dependent on them and then they nickel and dime them uh, because they, you know, they don't, there's a there's a whole world of, of that. Uh, but I really, yeah, it's it's also just part of our philosophy of people should be in control of of their own systems. Sure. Right. They shouldn't have to because there's this like they shouldn't have to turn to an outside party because they're like, oh, we want to publish a new article or we want to do something slightly different or we've learned something about how uh, our users are coming to our site and we want to make a small change. And so we've got to, you know, pay somebody else outside. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. On the topic of joining startups, you actually started in originally in a small company that joined a startup is that what you said i uh, know i worked for a publishing company that spun out a startup got it um how did that come about did, did you always were you always inter- interested in tech was that where things started or um i was interested in communication and i was interested in, in technology you know especially as a kid i'm not even sure you know, I look back and I, I try to figure out, like, where did the interest really come from? Because my immediate family wasn't too into technology. Like, I had some uncles who actually sold microchips, but they didn't really talk to me about computers. It just sort of, I don't know. Yeah, I can't even tell. I mean, I I was good at math and we did a little 
early programming and I learned like binary and stuff, but I don't know where I really wanted a computer. One of my great Christmas stories um, was that I I asked for a computer and I got a game system. I was pissed. <laughs> so that was my angriest Christmas. Uh, because I, I thought, you know, I saw the box and it looked like the right size and I opened it up and I was like, what do you <laughs> think of me? I was such a nerd. Yeah. I was a huge nerd. But, uh, you know, I always loved, um, you know, books and reading and writing and also technology. So when the web came along, I was like, I want to do that. That's awesome. Hey, look, physics laboratories can talk to each other around the world. That's the greatest thing ever. One of the big topics going on right now is sort of gender in tech and people trying to figure out, especially in the design world, like how to get not only more females to be interested in design, but also how do we highlight the work of amazing female designers? Mm -hmm. I was curious if you had some thoughts on just sort of that problem in general. It seems like you would have some insight. Yeah, some insight some that. insight, especially just with like your huge background, right? Um, so it's really, yeah, this is something I think about a lot because, you know, I got started in the, in San Francisco in the really early days of the web and it was, I look back on it and it's not, you know, I've talked to other people. This isn't just my, you know, rose colored backwards looking nostalgia glasses. It was a really, there was gender welcome environment i don't know what the right phrase is it was functional you know a it was normal I think place it was, nor it was normal <laughs> and so i'm like now it seems really pathological and i'm trying to figure out what where did that creep in and did it creep in because all of a sudden you know i was talking to a good friend of mine um who uh has you know been in, in the business and been in san francisco as, as long as i have and we, we got on this topic and he said well you know everybody is so interested in the technology and building this new world and they weren't just interested in making money. And so maybe that changed it, but I'm still, there's still like a missing piece for me because, you know, I, maybe it was because everybody was self-taught and so there was no basis on which to exclude people, but nobody had any issues. Like I remember my early job, I was like, Oh, you're interested in technology. That's great. And nobody questioned mm. whether, I was going to be worse at HTML than some dude. You know, the guys in the server room invited me to the LAN parties. There was no, <laughs> <laughs> I had root on the server. It was fine. There, mm -hmm. was, there was no weirdness at all. So that's why I'm, I'm still, I don't know if I have a good answer for that because I don't know exactly when people decided to be jerks to women because yeah it was it was all fine it yeah. was like men and women working together and you know there was like jackassery and there was goofing off and i'm sure there were people like dating each other at work and there were nerf guns and there was drinking and, and but there was no toxic sexism and there there was no issue like there was really that I encountered, except every once in a while, there'd be, you know, there, there's, there's that guy, that right? Guy, sure. There's that guy. There's like, oh, there's that sexist jerk guy. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't, it was that guy. But everyone hates that guy. But everyone hates that guy. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. it's not Every guy hates that guy. Guys don't hate that guy. Everyone hates that everyone guy. Everyone hates yeah. that guy. And it was like, oh, him. Yeah. And I roll whatever. Mm -hmm. But it, I, I was in these really functional environments, you know, it was, it was great at the publishing company I worked for. It was when it was a startup. It was great. Um, you know, you'd run into your 
Dilberty boss every once in a while, but there was no there was no feeling of being anything but welcome in the business. Um, Does that feeling still exist for you today? Like, do you still see that or or has that also sort of eroded and it's just hard to pinpoint? um, Well, for me, I'm fine. (laughs) I'm mules. Yeah. Yeah. A legend among <laughs> among the design world. Oh well, well, thanks. But and 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 I've also I was talking to an anthropologist friend of mine about that. Just personally, the whole time I've been in this business, I've I've never gotten like I know people who and even like some women who are really experienced and speakers who go out there and they're outspoken and they get some heat and they get some threats and they get weirdness. I have not really experienced that. And I'm not saying I've done anything better or different or special, but it's a mystery to me. Mm. It's a mystery to me why some people go out there and they're outspoken. And some people seem to be more of a beacon for awful behavior than others. And that's, that's the other mystery. Mule's done a really great job of keeping a, a really good balance of male and female mm-hmm. employees. You've had a lot of people come through here over the years, mm-hmm. but right now it's what five and four female and male, something like that. God, I don't see gender. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, no, that, I can't count. <laughs> I can't count. It's more like that. One of the two. Well, I read the. I guess it was Mike's blog post about mm-hmm. that. And it was like, this is so common sense. If if there's people out there that are talented, why does it matter, right? Yeah. Of course, then naturally we're going to end mm-hmm. up like pretty balanced because mm-hmm. that's how the world works. So there's pretty much 50-50 men and yeah. women in the world. So my question was more coming from the point of it doesn't seem to be 50-50 in the tech world mm-hmm. right. currently. And that's probably a degree of uh, invitingness and being mm-hmm. encouraged to start from a young age, things like that. And I was just wondering how you manage that. Is is hiring mm, hiring men and women equally a like a a priority or is it does it just come kind of naturally happen that way well you know it's a it's a goal to have um you know not like equal i'm trying to figure out the the right way to say this because it's not you know it's not like we don't have a a quota but it's good i think it's good for men and women to work together in relatively equal numbers. Like that's a pleasant <laughs> yeah. and, and productive environment. And I'm super skeptical of any culture or environment that's gender skewed. Like yeah. it's just weird to me. Like if, uh, you have the greatest time when you have, and not just that, but it, like as, as much people, especially in the design business, the more you have people from diverse backgrounds solving problems, it's like the more people's personal experiences and interests and backgrounds and childhoods, like all of that comes to bear and i don't see how like i was talking to somebody who'd gotten a who'd had a weird interaction with a recruiter and she uh, she posted her message about it on on facebook about a response we were having this discussion and it just came out how can you if you want your products or services to reach the largest audience which presumably you do how can you not want your workforce to have a background as diverse mm-hmm. um because you know it's the assumptions that that tank products, right? And if you look around, you're like, oh, we assume all users are like us and we're all, you know, not to disparage you because we're all like white guys in our 20s, you know, who live in San Francisco. We don't take it personally. I feel yeah. so disparaged. <laughs> um, 
And so I think it's it's good to have people from diverse backgrounds. The first agency I worked at was so diverse, like different ages and races and genders. And and that that really makes a huge difference. And I think what happens is, you know, it starts with the culture. Because in this case, with this startup that approached this friend of mine, this recruiter, she looked at the website and she's like, all you talk about you don't talk about the work. And I think that's what works in our favor is we talk about the work. Our culture comes from the kind of work we do. But you get these organizations, especially startups, and they don't talk about the work. They talk about the ping pong and the drinking and the field trips. <laughs> and and they talk about, you know, cultural fit is this really coded phrase. And, you know, people <laughs> yeah. like us. But... But I think one of the things that would really change it, you know, and then they, they recruit in these stupid, I, I think it's it's really immature, right, to talk about your work in terms of play. Like, yeah. work should be fun. But the fun part, doing the work should be fun. Mm -hmm. What makes the work fun, and I think this is also a good way to tell if what you're working on is a good idea or not. You're like, what's the most exciting thing about going to work? Is it that I'm making something that solves a problem and makes a lot of money for us and makes people out in the world happier, makes their life easier, and that gets me out of bed every morning? Or is it that, like, I'm going to go hang out with my bros, you know, <laughs> and play some ping pong and drink some Red Bull? Like, if that's what's good about your job, then maybe your product isn't awesome, hmm. right? If that's what... what or at you, least you're oh. not the right person to work on it, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so I think if the company is like, here's the problem we're solving in the world, and we think it's this functional business, and we're really excited to really challenge ourselves and do great work, and we want people to actually also have good lives. And when we say good life, we really don't mean just constantly being at work. Right. Um because that's another thing that's really I think You have a very interesting policy on that, Emil. Yeah, people people leave at six. As a, as a rule, unless, you know, sometimes there are exceptions or people really say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm really jamming on this thing. I'll stay a little bit later. But we bust people for like emailing clients outside of hours. If we find out somebody's working on the weekend and sometimes you can tell if you're in Google and you see like a Google Docs alert or something, you know, you see, <laughs> oh, something's been changed or we get drop docs notifications. Mm -hmm. Like there's a talk because um we find out like okay were you just like in a space because sometimes people really are like oh it's sunday afternoon and i've been thinking about this design problem and i i'm really excited about it and i want to work on it like that legitimately happens sometimes sure. but then there are also cases where people say oh god I, it's taking me way longer to get this thing done than i thought and so i'm going to do some work on the weekend and i'm feeling kind of stressed about it like that we want to know about and that's a situation we want to change to say like, okay, how did we get to a place where you had more on your plate than you could reasonably do? Because it's my, it's my belief that, um, that nobody actually needs to work, you know, 12 hours a day. Like nobody, nobody has 12 actual productive hours of, of work a day in them. No way. Yeah. But we have this culture of always on and busy so that, you know, if people work from nine to five at a startup, it's like, oh, you're not committed. You're not. But it's like, you know, people are just screwing around. I really think. But there's a like, oh, we're all in it together and we're all sacrificing. And I don't think the quality of work's any better. I think that's just that's a that's all a sham. It's this weird, twisted bragging that you work longer, right? Yeah. When it should be that I, I get to work less. That should be the bragging point, right? But yeah, it should be bragging like, oh, I got my work done really fast and now I'm going to go see the X-Men. Like... <laughs> 
Yeah. Why is that not the goal? Mm. Why is that not the goal to be productive and do your stuff and then go off and recharge? Because especially if you're doing creative work, you're coding and designing. The time you spend at your treadmill desk every day is not necessarily your most creative problem solving time. You know, you think about something, you work on something, and then you go off and you go away from your computer. And so often that's when things click and you come up with the solution. And that's that's true. And if you don't want your employees to be able to recharge and, and go off away from everybody they're working with to have different inputs into their brain, you're going to get lower quality work. This is like, this is science. This, <laughs> you know, it really why is, this, is. Why is this such a problem still? Why it does seem so yeah, common I, sense, right? I think that's part like of the culture. People need to I recharge. think I think there's this like uh there's this culture of um the work we're doing is one. The work we're doing is so challenging and hard. Right? So we got funding for it cuz we're it's a great team. We're doing It's a work. game changer. It's a game changer. <laughs> it's really hard. How can you disrupt, you know, in 8 hours a day? <laughs> mm-hmm. You've got to be fully knitted. <laughs> And so I really think it is like you've got some, it's like your Fitbit challenge for like putting in hours at work. And so I really think it is. People. Why don't we see those on fitness trackers? Yeah, Come on. Be a thing. Hours uh, at work. Yeah. Code you commit. You could have a leaderboard. Yes. Probably, that probably does exist. Can I, I have my GitHub uh, on my Apple Watch? Oh, oh, no, no. See, we've said this out loud and now it's going to happen. No. Someone out there make it. Have, have you seen those like, things where people will like make shapes in their GitHub, like commit? history no it's great someone really? did like all the one-up mushrooms from super oh, mario nice. it's great that's, See, that's dedication cool. that that's is dedication fun. that's somebody who loves their work that's months <laughs> years <laughs> a year yeah so i think i think the priority is not the work and the problem you're solving the priority is this culture right this sort of pathological mm-hmm. culture and i think that's also tied into the gender issue right because to vastly generalize, I'll men say, are all pathological. Erica Hall. <laughs> no, it's, it's a, yeah, it's not a guy problem. But I think because I had a lot of friends for a long time in the game industry, and the game industry has this huge long history of uh, not gender parity. But my friends, my guy friends who worked who were very successful in, in video game industry, they would sleep there. They would, you know, in the weeks leading up to E three, you know, they wouldn't. Yep. They'd come out for lunch with people outside their company like once a month or something like that. And I think for whatever reason, there are, this doesn't appeal to women as much as it appeals to guys. That's, <laughs> that's the one general, because I really think, I think women are like, you know what? I want to have a life. I don't want my life to just be around work. Mm-hmm. And if that's the selling point is you get to hang out with people at work all the time and not do other things, that can seem kind of boring and kind of one-dimensional. And I think that's part of the issue. It's not, you know, not, n- not wanting to work hard, you know, or, or really commit to the job. It's like, what, how do you measure um, the value of somebody's work and how committed they are? And is it in the sacrifice you make in your personal life? I think sometimes, you know, it seems like that's like, oh, we're here and we're all, because it's, it's a bonding thing. Mm-hmm. Like I worked when I, when I worked at my first, the first agency I worked at, we worked on this. It was actually, it was a project for electronic arts too. Um, we worked on this project uh, and we were there like six or seven days a week. We were there until midnight, 1 a.m. You know, at midnight that somebody would come around and say, oh, they're going to tow the cars. Everybody's got to move your car. Oh my God. And I remember it being kind of fun. Like we'd have the music playing really loud and we'd all be there like, yeah, we're working on this thing and we're working really late and we're all really committed and we all, you know, 
we all really like each other and we feel really cool. And then the project got killed right at the end. So it never saw the light of day. And that was the last time I did anything like that, you know, but it was, I mean, it's sort of fun because you really feel like, oh, we must be doing something. It's sort of self-justifying. Like what we were doing must be important because we're working so hard at it. And I think that's also in the emptiness of some of these startups, right? And this is not to tar all startups with the same brush. Like there there are plenty of people going out there trying to solve real problems Mm -hmm. and do really interesting Mm -hmm. things who are really driven by the excitement to do that work. And then I think there are people who are like, oh, if we actually stopped for a second and took a breath and look around, we'd realize that what we're doing is really stupid and pointless, but we've got to sort of keep the hype going until somebody purchases us. Yeah. The aqua hire. Someone give us yeah. money. We better work all the time. Yeah. Like, look, we're working so hard. So it's what we have, it's like, they're, they're all Marxists. Like, oh, it's a labor theory of value. <laughs> we're putting in so many hours of labor that our company must be worth a $500 million valuation. You know, mm. I think that's where it comes from. Thank you once again to iconfinder.com for helping bring design details into your ears right now. <laughs> that sounds so weird. They delivered it directly. <laughs> they came here from Copenhagen, picked up the show, and put it into your ear. Into your ears. Inserted it directly. Yeah, so you've heard us talk about Icon Finder in past episodes. Uh, if you don't know, they are the largest source of premium vector icons on the web they have over 450,000 icons right now and they're adding 20,000 new ones every single month uh icons are in any style you want they have outline icons glyph icons solid uh they come in svgs pngs jpgs G. love my g <laughs> all the g's uh you can use them in any app uh any system they're all vector scalable um yeah, and you can check them out. Uh, they have a really cool service called Icon Finder Pro that gives you uh, just more access. So you're not buying icons one at a time. You get sort of a membership to the database. And if you sign up for Icon Finder Pro today, you can use the promo code ROBOT and you'll get 50% off your first month. Which the base model is only like $9 a month. This is not an expensive service and it's really, really useful. The base, the base version gets you, uh, the base version of Pro, I'm sorry. Gets you 25 downloads a month. Unlimited gets you unlimited downloads per month, as the name suggests. <laughs> Makes sense. Yep. It's really awesome. I used to have to search a lot of sources to find different um, different icons or uh, figure out how to make certain icons. And this, it's like a dictionary of icons. Yeah. It's this, so good. I remember in the past, this used to be a thing. People would do like, here are the 10 best icon packs from March. Yeah. There's no reason to there's go no, anywhere else. Like, if you need a search icon, just search for search. If you need a map icon search for map and it will seriously return thousands like they have every style everything you can imagine so yeah thank you so much icon finder you guys are awesome uh check them out and use the promo code robot to get 50 percent off your first month of icon finder pro thanks again to icon finder can we branch off that into the apple watch we, had a, right, yeah, no. we had a debate on this mm-hmm. on monday night about the we did our first ever bonus episode. It was our bonus episode. And we were wondering, is the Apple Watch a significant improvement in our lives? Or is this a marginal piece of technology? Or are we missing the big picture? And of course, you had some very uh, impassioned tweets and retweets. <laughs> My so impassioned tweets. <laughs> maybe just retweets. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on just the Apple Watch from a designer perspective. Um, I'm skeptical. So Apple... Yeah, in the last decade has a really 
fantastic track record. So I weigh that track record. And so I was really excited. Like I got an iPhone the first day. I was, as soon as I saw the iPad, I got one of those. I love my iPad. The watch, you know, I'm, people are excited about it. And it's anything I say now will be speculation. Yeah. But it feels to me like it's like the smart refrigerator. Like you look at like IDEO and all these design companies <laughs> have been trying to make a smart refrigerator for like 20 years. And that's a real uh, solution in search of a problem. And I feel when like the watch. it finally works, it'll be so great though. I can see if I have milk at home from my phone. <laughs> yeah. And I feel, I'm like, <laughs> why? And then I can order it and have it waiting for me when I get home. It'll be great. Yeah, Instacart. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, that look is only see fantastic. Yeah, that's smart. <laughs> so it's, so I, so the question, my question is, well, why a watch? Because this was, you know, this was the question, you know, Steve Jobs was always famous for asking was like, what's the real problem we're solving? Like, don't focus on the form, focus on what the abstract problem we're solving, the situation that we're addressing, not like we're, we're not making a thing. Like the iPhone was not a phone. He didn't go there and say, we're going to make a phone. He made the, the supercomputer everybody carries around their pockets. Mm-hmm. But with the watch, I feel like, Everybody's making smartwatches. It's a watch. It's still, it's a watch. And it's, a, it's also an, a, a piece of technology that's parasitic on this other piece of technology. Um, and it, so it really feels like, for the first time in a while, it's a, it's a solution in search of a problem. And it's because it is... It's a watch. It's a thing on your wrist that you've got to wear. So I think the fact the way it determines the usage and you only have like you only have room on your wrist for one thing. Right. Are you really going to wear the same watch every single day? Are you going to remember to charge it every night? You know, I'm trying. I'm, yeah. And this is, again, total speculation. But I think the future of of wearables, that's such a stupid thing like to define the technology like that as oh it's something you wear you know i mean the the power well i guess i am thinking about all the all the different other devices that just seems strange the the real future of let's continue to call them wearables isn't that you have this one thing that you're required to wear every single day that's really constraining it's looking at all of the things that it's, it's going back to what I was saying about looking at what people's habits actually are and then adding value to what people are already doing. It's like Apple came along with the iPhone and said, you never need to watch it again, right? <laughs> like watch sales plummeted of anything but like real luxury watches. And then Apple came along and said, oh, no, you know that thing that you Psych. don't need anymore? <laughs> Psych. It's like, what's next? They're going to say like, oh, hey, we're coming out with a smart fax machine. So you've got to get a fax machine again. <laughs> So it's like they're going backwards and saying that thing that we eliminated, you need now. So it seems like they created a cultural problem in doing that and that everyone's pulling out their phones and like staring at them the whole time. I th- there's an element of me that thinks it's mm-hmm. to remove that as much as possible because now it's a glance thing and then the screen just shuts off on you automatically. So it can kind of train you to not do that as much. So you're but staring it, at your wrist. It also enables, well... <laughs> It also enables you to spend more time looking at your notifications because yeah. normally you can put your phone face down or whatever. This is a watch. You have to take it off to put it away. And Yeah, that sounds like a yeah. nightmare to me because I actually, I have two watches. I have uh, the Garmin I use when I run or I bike that it's really cool. It tracks stuff. It goes into Garmin Connect. I can look at all the data, all that. 
And then I have a watch I got at Muji that's the stupidest analog watch that doesn't even have a clasp. And I carry that when I just, I use that if I'm going to be meeting with somebody. And I know like, okay, I only have an hour to talk to this person and I don't want to look at my phone. Mm -hmm. But what wearing that watch means is I'm going to glance at it to check the time, but I can't possibly get any other information. But people are going to be using that. They're going to be even less paying attention because they can get away with it more. So you could be having a meeting with somebody and think you've got their full attention, but they're reading their email the whole time in a way that's way more subtle than, oh, I'm pulling out my phone. So I think that was more of a barrier. So the idea that to wear something constantly that gets all my notes, I don't want that on my body. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, this is so intimate. You can have these things on your body. It's like, that seems even worse to me. But, but what I was saying about the wearable thing is that what's going to be great is when you take everything that people already use and already wear and add intelligence and value to that. The eye shoe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, sure. Smart shoes. Smart shoes. Um, you know, your your T-shirt. It's like, what are people already doing yeah, or carrying? Yeah. And why don't you. we make that mm-hmm. better instead of a watch? Like, a, Didn't did they try think? smart shoes with like Nike Plus? Oh, yeah. That was a thing and a shoe. But that didn't I seem think, to add much value. People kind of got yeah. over it pretty quickly. But at least you didn't have to only wear well i suppose you only wore you only wore them for running so it made sense but this is a general purpose object that you're supposed to have every single day and always keep charged so now there are two things that could run out of juice right because what happens if you got your watch and your phone runs out of juice is that going to be a situation right so all the you're in big trouble charging things is a huge issue yeah all the default apps work it's the web connectivity that does mm-hmm. not so at least to some degree you'll have some stuff but yeah. But why? Not, but again, I said, you know, I've well, got... Well, like if my phone died mm-hmm. and I have it and I have my calendar already mm-hmm. synced up, which mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's a thing, yeah. um, that would be really convenient. So like I have to be somewhere and I don't know what the address is. Having that stored somewhere in a, like a backup would be really handy. But Backup yourself to charge. Yeah, backup yourself to charge. But I mean, having two things with battery makes it likely that I will have one thing with battery more... Yeah. Okay. Well, that's what I do with my, my iPad is like my backup iPhone because yeah. I've got a cell, a cell <laughs> iPad and I've totally used it for that. Like, oh, I've got to send a message to somebody in my phone to when I use because the iPad lasts longer. Mm. Yeah. So like I said, I've, I have a lot of faith in the Apple marketing machine. And I also know that a lot of things can really progress from the first generation. But this just seems like a lack of creative problem solving on their part. It seems like, oh, we've got to stuff things in a watch because people have, since the digital watch, been trying to make the Dick Tracy smart watch. And, oh, we finally made the watch by... And the, I think the bigger issue I have with it is that as it's supposed to be as a design object. Yeah, they call it jewelry, which is fundamentally not a computer. That is form and not function. Right. And as form, it's not the greatest watch. Like a watch, <laughs> like a spe- it's so generic looking. And I think as a luxury item, right, the thing that makes luxury items luxury items is that they're so obviously luxury items. And you look at the, what, the $349 watch and the $17,000 watch, and they are only very subtly different. It's like, oh, it's gold. It has a red band as opposed to having like a white rubber band or whatever. Mm -hmm. That is too subtle a difference. Like you look at high-end watches like a Rolex or a Cartier watch, or you look at a high-end handbag, like high-end handbags are ugly, because, wow, you know, that lady has got this Birkin bag that was $40,000 because really ugly. But the watch is like sort of a boring. You don't think the golden look. red is pretty like gross? It's like it's as gross as they could make it. 
right? <laughs> it's but it's not that gross. That's not that's like not the worst not, insult that it was too pretty for them to make it that ugly. Yeah, but but the problem is it's it's generic. Yeah. It's it's not differentiated. And so if they're saying what we're making is a luxury item, you have to look at lu- a luxury item, you have to immediately glance down and be like, "Oh, and also, it's not going to last, right? It's it's a piece of technology fundamentally. Yeah. And like watches, like a brawn watch, if you want like a, a well-designed watch that's your like. So so I don't think it functions as something that identifies you as having design taste, like a pair of shoes or a nice watch or a pair of glasses does. It's like oh, you're you're wearing the watch that everybody else is watching. So it's generic like that. And it doesn't function. So that's the taste. I've got taste, not money. Right. And then it doesn't function in the I've got money but no taste side mm. either. It's very middle of the road. Mm. It's it's very it's khaki pants. <laughs> it really is, and maybe they're better or worse. Really expensive tailored. khaki pants. Really expensive khaki pants. <laughs> but maybe maybe there's like Dockers, and then there's they're like eight thousand thread count khakis. Yeah, <laughs> but they're still khaki pants. Yeah. So okay. I think yeah, that's that's my pronouncement on it. It's like still officially dorky, but yeah, maybe it might be really comfy. Maybe it will. <laughs> change maybe it will change things and maybe it will be amazing because apple has a great track record and so i do weigh that but i'm skeptical so do you that's think my... that apple's track record is kind of like a gambler's fallacy thing like we feel like these last gambles they took were related to this current one i, I feel like uh, people yeah. kind of relate those when they necessarily shouldn't oh yeah and, and apple's got so much mystique around it like they've flubbed things they've come out with some real the first macbook air was ridiculous and over expensive and terrible yeah. at least they fixed it and became like the standard yeah. laptop at least here so maybe this is the first thing <laughs> yeah. and then in five years the implant is gonna be ace right <laughs> maybe it's like that but yeah we'll look back watch. on this in a couple of years and either be dramatically embarrassed or feel very confident in our ability to we'll see so i'm <laughs> predict the future i'm really i am really interested like as a designer i'm really interested to see what happens more than anything like like i said i'm skeptical but it's all speculation right now mm-hmm. so i want to see what happens i want to see how people use it i want to see if charging it is an issue or i want to i want to know if it increases or reduces people's kind of notification anxiety because right now i'm up to here with notifications i'm done do you shut them off I'm done. Yeah, I've been like just shutting him down because everything is just everything's a notification. Yeah. And so I think we only have one wrist and we only have like one attention span and I I think this might be the the thing that tips people over into like, you know what? I've had enough. I'm going to leave it all at home. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think this might drive sales of, you know, stupid analog watches. <laughs> in a perverse irony. Yeah. Cool. So you've been in the Bay Area, San Francisco for 16 years? 20 years now. 20 years. Yeah. That's rough. Crazy. That's a long time. So you've been yeah. through the first the first crash. Yeah. And now who knows where we're at. Tell, tell me a little bit about like what's changed. What are the big things you've noticed and what, how do you feel? How do I feel? Um, I feel, I feel good. It, well, Let's see. I'm trying to, I feel a lot of things here. I'll say I feel a lot of things. I've seen similar things before. San Francisco is a gold rush town. Like you can find newspaper articles about how new people are ruining things, and you know, rent is one five gold dollar piece a week or something. <laughs> you know, 
since since the um you know since the 1850s right and it's hard because um people come in you know san francisco is also a place that not very many people are from so it's a very transient place but the people who do come here I'll, there's some people who come here uh like i did because you know i always wanted to live in san francisco where are you from originally los angeles I was wanting to get away from Los Angeles, come to come to San Francisco. I really wanted to come to San Francisco. I first came here on like a high school field trip. I loved it. I went away to college. I came back, lived here. Always wanted to be here because it represents something and it's beautiful and it really feels like my home. And then there are people who come here maybe more opportunistically, but I don't even know if that's fair. Like, it's really easy to say that, to say like, oh, the reasons I came to San Francisco are right and good and true. And somebody else who came here who never really thought about the city before but got a great job offer, well, they don't belong here. You know, I don't, I don't get to say that. San Francisco is a place that historically welcomes people and also casts people off. You know, mm-hmm. it's not easy. It's like it's different from New York. New York has its own way of attracting and repelling and grinding people down. Uh, it's different. You know, we don't have snow and we don't pile up our garbage on the street. Um, I'll call that a win. <laughs> yeah, thank God. Um, and at the same time, it's, it changes and it's difficult to see when some of the things and people that you feel are part of the San Francisco that you know and love get displaced, right? It is true that there are, it really seems to me that there are far fewer artists and musicians here. And it seems like there's less of a certain type of cultural scene than there used to be. However, I can't say for sure that that's economic and not because technology has obviated some of those things. Like maybe people don't go to bars and clubs anymore because they're on social media because they don't have to meet people in bars and clubs. So it might be the case that, you know, maybe artists can work from anywhere because people can communicate and they don't all have to be in the same place. Mm. You know, San Francisco as a place that's, that's very welcoming to queer people used to be really important, but now, you know, you don't have to come to, you don't have to escape your family as much anymore. We've had so much like, that's been this tremendous positive change in the rest of the country mm-hmm. to say, wow, like there are what, 30 states more that that you can marry somebody of the same gender now. And that's, that's huge. Like I didn't sort of expect that in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And if that's true, then, you know, if there are welcoming places uh, for people of all genders and people of, of all sexual orientations all over the country, why come to San Francisco? Hmm. And so maybe the Castro is less important, you know, as a neighborhood. And maybe it doesn't have the same vibrancy because people aren't marginalized. People don't have to to flee, you know. People don't have to go west anymore to find this place. People are making their homes everywhere. And so maybe that changes what San Francisco means as an alternative culture because alternative culture can be anywhere because you're not alone anymore. You're not alone if you're in a, a small community you know, if you're the only person who's into something, you can meet people online who are also into that thing. So, so that that sort of changes the the function, like San Francisco's sort of historical counterculture function. Interesting. I I feel the like there's leveling. a there's such a short cycle. I I haven't been been here that long, so I'm part of this, right? But if there's like a quick cycle. It seems like a turnaround mm-hmm. of companies and startups and people coming mm-hmm. in and out. And it's amazing that Mule has been here for 15 yeah. years. Yeah. 
well, two, since the fall of 2001, since the great, the great bust when we had to start a company or we wouldn't have had jobs. Um, Starting a website business or website design business yeah. at the end of the dot-com boom. In 2001. First, it's best time. Right? Man, That's rents incredible. were cheap. Yeah. Contractors were cheap. That's fair. Yeah, so it's it's a whole it's a whole different scene now, and so I think it comes in a, a cycle. I think the thing that's hardest as a business person is that we have to compete for resources. It's sort of like, and this is again going to be probably more insulting than I really mean it, but <laughs> startups are kind of like trust fund kids, right? <laughs> Say you want to get an apartment, and it's you and somebody who has a lot more money just got a windfall who just got a windfall yeah, yeah. I, mean, I won't disparage people who came for money or, or people so there are businesses who um uh who don't necessarily who aren't subject to the same economic forces that are pushing out businesses that have to make money mm-hmm. right because one of the other factors is that uh companies are really really cheap to start now in the first internet Definitely. and internet business, there was no like Amazon S3, like everything all cheap. Right now to start a company, um, you know, a laptop. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Not even, right? Not even. <laughs> and so if you start a company and a, a venture capitalist want to put money to work in your company and you have to scale, you have to, they want to give you a certain amount of money and you have to scale to a certain amount. It's like, how do you do that? You hire people. And how do you hire people if there are two startups and all you really, you know, like you need great talent. So then you compete on how awesome is your office? Mm-hmm. How awesome is your salary? Right? Because everything else is really cheap. So we're competing against that for rents and salaries. And how is it going? Competing to get designers here? Um, well, we, we have a very uh, specific value proposition, as they say. Like our work is really, really fun and interesting. And we boot you at six. So you won't make as much here as you will at Google, mm-hmm. but it all depends on what you value. And so we get people who value that, you know. That's we, awesome. And so, so that's, that's how we get people. So, I mean, there are definitely some people where it's like, well, you know, you're awesome and you would be awesome, but we can't match the offer you get. And, mm-hmm. and that's more important to you right now. And then there are people who are like, well, you know, I want to make enough money to have a nice life, but... That's not my deciding factor, and, and we get those people. And that seems to be working well, right? Yeah, it it's works okay, because also we're very consciously a modest size, because we want to be a really close-knit collaborative team that all works together in the same room. And we can do, because of the way that we work with our clients, we can accomplish really significant things with not a huge team. And everybody here is really fantastic and people really do work really well together. So we don't need, we need really, really good people, but we don't need that many of them. And so it's not like these people who are really trying to, we don't have to scale. It's not growth for growth's sake. Yeah. We have to grow for growth's sake, but, but startups do. Startups Mm -hmm. have to scale and they're like, we have friends, um, you know, one of our friends who was working with us for a long time after eight years left to go to Slack and it was sort of sad for us. But we totally didn't begrudge him because Slack is awesome. And he'd been with us for a long time. And that seemed like the, it, was, it was fantastic mm-hmm. for him. It was a fantastic opportunity. And he's like, I was talking to him the other day. And I forget what multiples. Like, oh, I started and we were 12 people. And now we're 300. You know, it's something like that. Jeez, yeah. You know, that's probably, I just, I just pulled those numbers out of the air. But they have to like hoover people up to keep going. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah. like the, that sort of talent. If they don't scale, they're stagnant. If yeah. you don't scale, you're more nimble. 
right? Like yeah. you can get more done outside of these corporate structures. If you guys were huge, you wouldn't, you would have the right. same issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so that's, that's why it works for us because we don't like, we never want to be more than like, we fluctuate like between 10 and 12 people. We never want to be more than that. And we, we can do a huge amount yeah. because everybody here is awesome. And what we do is work with our clients to make our clients better. And we're all about adding our insight and our knowledge and our experience. We're not about throwing, you know, 50 engineers at a problem. And so, so that works for us. Um, but, you know, other people have, cho- like, I can understand why it's not an, you know, it's not an easy business, but it's a super fun one. Yeah, yeah. So are you hiring right now? Is this something we could plug to <laughs> people listening to the show? Let's see. Um, You're at like 10 or 11 right now, right? Yeah. See, I, I can never I can't keep track. I don't know who works for us. Somebody can just walk out <laughs> like, hey, I guess you work for us now. Um, I think we're looking for like a writer slash content person. Okay. Yeah, somebody really good. But again, we're like, it's it's all about finding exactly the right person because the person, people come here, like one of the things we promise them in addition to, you will never be bored. And that is definitely, definitely a guarantee is um, that people who come here have a huge effect proportionally. And we really listen to people who work with us too. And that's the other thing. People have a lot of agency. Like if you come in and you're like, I want to work for this kind of client. I'm really, I want to learn these things. I want to grow in this way. We're like, do, do it. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a larger organization, it's like, here's your box mm-hmm. that we've put you in and here's what we really need you to do. And you don't have as much direct say or control. But people say, you know what? We've been doing this thing this way. I want to do this thing this other way. Can we try doing this totally other way? Mm-hmm. We'll say, yeah. You know. And so because of that, we need people who are really excited to do the work and, and who are you know mulish. mulish. And so we'll look for a long time. <laughs> To find to find the person who's who's really good here, as opposed to like, oh, we've got a we've got fifty recs open, and we've got to just hire people super fast. Right, right. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Uh, on that same note, is there anything you want to plug, mule related or otherwise, for people listening in? Uh, feel free to buy my book. Just enough research. It's, it's a good book. It's so oh, thanks. It's like a holy text for, for designers. <laughs> That'll be in the show notes, everyone. Check it out. All right. It's a nice color of orange, and it's it's a great size for winging at somebody's head. <laughs> Multi-purpose. Um, I also recommend um, Mike Montero's book, You're My Favorite Client, uh, which is a like, lovely shade of green and probably contains more profanity than mine, but maybe just a little. <laughs> um, and what? Do I get to plug a third thing? Just Go all to the things? Away. We, yeah. You've got a few projects that are like currently oh, open, if- right? Well, not, not mule projects, but... You got the t-shirt. Oh, yeah, yeah. So um, my freakish dog is on a t-shirt that says Chug Life because he's a chug, which is a chihuahua, and a pug who had a glorious night of passion in the (laughs) Central Valley producing a chug. And that's available on Cotton Bureau with a great illustration by Ape Lad, who's just a fantastic, fantastic illustrator. Um yeah, I think that's all the things. I've got books and shirts. Beautiful. And awesome. Yeah. We'll have links for all these in the show notes and send people your way. So. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, cool. thanks. It's been super thanks fun. Thanks so much for chatting with us. Yeah.